Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn again to Acts chapter 19 where we read just a little bit ago? And uh, we'll continue on here as we move through the book of Acts. Last week, in the first seven verses of chapter 19, we learned that Paul finally made his way back to the city of Ephesus, uh, to the church that God uh, had used him to plant there. And we looked in those first seven verses last week and learned that God used Paul uh, to help 12 disciples of John the Baptist come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here in verses 8 through 20, uh, Paul's still here in this major metropolitan city of Ephesus. It's located in what is modern-day western Turkey. And he spends about two to three years uh, here in this location. Uh, we find Paul here. He's committed to the Great Commission. He's dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. There's a lot going on in these 13 verses. Uh, so let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning as we go through them all together. Will you bow with me? Uh, God, we just sang a song uh, where we committed uh, to worship you, making Jesus Christ our, our focus. And um, not, uh, Lord, not, it's not about us, <laughs> not um, what we want, but what, what you want, what your word says. And that's how we come to your word right now, um, asking your Holy Spirit uh, to use the word that he inspired and uh, his indwelling presence in the life of every one of us here who's trusted him as Savior, asking him to use your word to do what you've designed it to. Um, so much more than just informing us, but, but transforming us. That's what we want to happen here this morning. So we come to your word with that kind of heart. And Lord, I, I pray you conform us into the image of Jesus Christ as we yield to the Holy Spirit's wielding of your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in verses 8 through 12, uh, we really have just a record of a very dedicated ministry by Paul and by the Christians here in Ephesus. According to verse 8, after leading those 12 disciples of John the Baptist to trust in Jesus as Savior, Paul did what he almost always does when he goes to a new city to share the gospel. When he would arrive there, he would head to the local Jewish synagogue first to teach. And for three months, it says he did this here in Ephesus. That had to be some kind of record. If you've been with us as we've gone through the book of Acts, most of the time when Paul did this, when he gets to a city and goes into the synagogue, it's not very long before there's some kind of riot or uproar, and he has to at least temporarily pause his ministry there. Um, not here. Three months, he's sharing the gospel in the synagogue. It says, Paul spoke the gospel boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Well, how did it go? Just like any time you or I might share the gospel, there were mixed results here. Verse 9 speaks about what I guess we could call the negative uh, side of those results. It says, when divers were hardened and they believed not, but they spoke evil of that way, again, 
Christianity, following Jesus, often referred to as the way or that way. Uh, they spoke evil of that way before the multitude. So just as in other cities where Paul shared the gospel in the synagogues uh, of the, to the Jewish people, some did not. Some did not believe. And they were actively in opposition to the gospel. That's what we see here. But we also know that there was some who did through Paul's ministry here in Ephesus. There were some who did believe and receive Jesus as your Savior because verse 9 goes on to say that Paul departed from them and he separated the disciples, meaning those who had trusted in Christ as Savior, and then he began disputing, that's a King James word, he began teaching uh, in the school of one Tyrannus. Now there's some historical documents that might help us uh, understand what's going on here. So Paul loses his teaching spot there in the synagogue because of all the opposition he's receiving. And uh, in a city like Ephesus, and at that time, uh, in the Greek and Roman empires where uh, philosophizing was kind of their thing that they did, all day they would have public lecture halls, and Paul kind so he kind of rents out this lecture hall. Uh, historical documents said he, he did it from 11 to 4. He got the budget hour there. Uh, he chose that. He would do his tent making thing, earning money before and after that. But from about 11 to 4, he would use this public lecture hall of Tyrannus in order to disciple people, in order to continue to teach them the word of God. And um, you know, the school of Tyrannus, not a, a church, but we might have kind of the first instance of a church building outside a home. Most of the time, uh, so far in the book of Acts, when a church was planted, it would be in people's homes. Here we've got an instance where um, they're, they're getting a space to come all meet together. And uh, that might not be a church building, the school of Tyrannus, but as soon as Christians got there, it, it became a church, didn't it? because we are the church. Uh, what an encouraging, what an exciting report we hear from verse 10. It says, and this continued for the space of two years so that all, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now that is quite a statement there. Dedicated to the ministry that God gave him, Paul discipled believers here in this location for about two years. And I want you to pay attention to the results that God describes there in verse 10. All they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. All of Asia. Now we think of Asia kind of as being from, well, I suppose from nowadays from like Ukraine over, right? This is talking about the western half of Turkey. That was the Roman province of Asia, uh, where Ephesus was the capital. All of Asia. How did every single person in what's probably about like the size of the state of North Carolina, how did every person hear the word of the Lord? Well, not by coming to the school of Tyrannus where Paul was teaching. It didn't have the seating capacity uh, for that. How did this happen? What God describes here in verse 10, the Christians who were being discipled, they also fulfilled the Great Commission just as Paul did. Uh, Paul equipped them for ministry by discipling them and then as they went about their daily lives, kind of like in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 in that Great Commission passage when Jesus says, as you are going, make disciples. Uh, that's what they did. It says all of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. They heard the gospel. Some believe, received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Some obviously did not, but they all heard. They all heard the gospel. They all did what God asked us to do. Isn't it a blessing that God doesn't ask you and I to save anybody? I can't. You can't. We're just called to share the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will take the word of God, and he will transform lives. That's what we see happening here. I have no doubt that as these Christians went out sharing the gospel from Ephesus, that the other churches nearby 
that we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, that they came to be, they came into existence. If you look at Revelation 2 and 3, the first one mentioned is the church of Ephesus. We have that here. But, but then there's the uh, church of Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. How did those all come into existence? By what we're reading about right here in verse 10. God used Christians who were dedicated to ministry to accomplish this amazing feat. God could do the same thing here through us, couldn't he? He could. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we followed their example here, and as we're going about our daily lives, or at work, whether in our communities, or when we're in the checkout line at Food Line with our buggy full of groceries, when we're at San Jose, if we take that opportunity to give a gospel tract out, ask somebody how they're doing, what's bringing joy to their life, start a gospel conversation. Yeah, um, all of Bladen County could hear the gospel totally within the realm of possibility. All of the Southeast North Carolina would be able to hear the word of the Lord Jesus, just as we read about here. Now, verses 11 and 12, they speak of God using Paul's dedication and ministry to work special miracles, it says here, special miracles. Even articles of clothing that were somehow connected to Paul, they were taken to the sick, they were taken to the demon-possessed, and they healed them of their maladies. These are special miracles. These are unusual, I think, is literally what it means in the Greek. Um, now, I remember like 20 years ago watching TV late at night or something. They had this guy on there, Robert Tilton, and, you know, you send him a sow a seed of $20. He'll send you a hanky that he prayed over, and you're supposed to cure you of anything you had. The power of Paul did not do this. There's no power in Paul. Please understand that. The power of Jesus Christ accessed by faith did this. These were special miracles. And like other supernatural miracles, it's not the first one we've read about in the book of Acts. These were miracles that were empowered by God, by his Holy Spirit, to validate the message of the apostles. Uh, they did not have all of God's word. You and I have this treasure right here. This is a special miracle right here. This is an unusual miracle. They didn't have this. They had the Old Testament, New Testament uh, was probably in the process of being written. Some of the Gospels, some of Paul's first letters at this time. But God used the Holy Spirit to do miracles like this, special, unusual works of God to give evidence to the life-transforming Word of God until it was completed as you and I have it now. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus that has the power to heal the sick. Amen? It's Jesus that has the power uh, to free the demon-possessed. It's not Paul's hanky. But verse 12's mention of that, people being freed from demon possession, leads us to the next section of verses in verses 13 to 16. We read here about a dangerous manipulation. We're introduced in verse 13 to some vagabond Jews, Jews who would travel around a group of Jewish men and uh, their business and ministry and kind of both was to, cast, to try to cast demons out of people. As a major city of its day, Ephesus was not just a big metropolitan and cultural and educational and mercantile center. It was also a center for pagan religions. Giant temples to Diana and Artemis, idolatry, and demonic activity that was behind it. And these vagabond Jews, seeing the power of Christ working through the apostle Paul to free the demon-possessed, these, these vagabond Jews decided to get in on that as well. The end of verse 13 tells us that they took upon them, they took upon themselves to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. Now listen, we're about to find out how dangerous it is to try 
and manipulate Christ, manipulate the power of Christ with selfish motivations. We get a little more information about this group in verse 14. They were sons of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva. And verse 15 tells us what happened when these individuals tried to manipulate the name of Christ and the power of Jesus Christ for their own personal purposes. A demon answered their attempt. They said, in the name of Jesus, we command you uh, to free this man. And the demon answered them this way, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? <laughs> There's something important in the uh, original Greek language that doesn't come through in our English translation because when we talk about knowing, we have the word know pretty much. Um, but in the Greek, the demon literally says this, Jesus, I gnosko, I have a deep experiential relationship with Jesus. And he says, Paul, I epistemi know. Now, I've heard about Paul, but who are you? And why are you using the name of Jesus Christ? Uh, their manipulation, they're using the name and power of Jesus for their own personal advantage. It literally becomes dangerous. Next, in verse 16, it says, The man possessed by this demon, he leaped on all seven of these men. He overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled. All of them fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's pretty dangerous, right? Not something I'd want to be involved in. Well, what does this account have to do with you and I today? Well, there are believers and unbelievers alike who partake in a dangerous manipulation of Jesus in a similar way, even now. There are people who use the name of Jesus, paying lip service to him. Maybe they'll sing, uh, they'll praise him. There's people who desire to wield the power that is in the name of Jesus for their own personal gains. There's people who engage in a similar dangerous manipulation of the name and power of Jesus so that maybe he will fix their marriage. <laughs> I mean, that's the only reason they're coming to Christ. Or maybe they will, um, he'll bless my business. Or I've got this financial problem and I'm hoping that something will help it so I'll just try Jesus. People who only come to Jesus hoping that just by adding a little Jesus to my life, it's going to benefit me temporarily here and now. Friend, if that's your take on who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he offers you, that's not following Jesus. It's not. Um, that is not being born again. That, that's not being saved. That is idolatry, plain and simple, is what that is. Yes, <laughs> truly receiving the gospel, being born again, following Jesus, uh, coming to him to save you from your sins and to make you a new creation and to give you new life in Christ now and eternal life with him uh, one day. That is going to impact every area of your life. It'll impact your marriage. It'll impact your business. It'll impact everything. But there is no such thing as adding a little Jesus to your life that's ever presented in the word of God as being the gospel. That's not what it is. No, it's humbly yielding your life to Christ. It's not about adding a little of Jesus to your life. To come to Christ, it's an exchange. You're saying, I'm now yours, Lord, all of me. You can have all of me, every part of me belonging to you. It's you and I saying, God, I want to do your will for my life every day. Yes, it's coming to Jesus as your Savior. It's also making him Lord of your life. Isn't that who he is? The King of kings? The Lord of lords? It's telling Jesus you are worth it. You're worth more than anything. That's not what was going on here. Now, I'm not saying God's word doesn't say that you're going to be attacked by demons like happened here if you engage in this kind of dangerous manipulation of Jesus Christ. But, but really, it's even more dangerous than what happened here. You do this, I mean, it's eternally dangerous. It's eternally deadly to do so because coming to Jesus for what he might could do for you, 
here and now in a, in a materialistic, worldly desire, that is not coming to Jesus for salvation at all. That's a lost person trying to use Jesus, trying to manipulate Jesus, uh, his name, his power. And that's a dangerous manipulation that has eternally deadly results. That's what was going on here. But uh, God used this instance of people maligning the name of Jesus Christ to actually magnify the name of Christ in verses 17 through 20. In these last four verses, there's a definite magnification of Jesus. Let's read verse 17 once more. It says, And this was known. What happened was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was what? It was magnified. It was magnified. And we see just how the name of Jesus was magnified in the next two verses. In verses 18 and 19, it's there that we learn that even some Christians, even some people who had come to trust in Jesus as their Savior, they had believed they still had some attachments to their former life, their pagan, idolatrous, demonic beliefs. We learn in verses 18 and 19, they still had books on magic, it says, and sorcery. They had descriptions and teachings about how to access demonic powers for personal advantage. And as a result of everything that just went on in verses 13 to 16, out of a fear of the Lord, it says there that they confessed and they showed their deeds. And many of them also, which used curious arts, they brought their books together and they burned them before all men. What's happening here? sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, Christians emptying stuff out of their lives that has no business being a part of a life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Christian, do you want Jesus to be magnified in your life? Then you need to get rid of anything that veils his glory or that magnifies anything or anyone else. Do you want Christ to be magnified in your life? I hope so. That's God's purpose in giving you life in the first place when, when you were born. It's also God's purpose in saving you, giving you eternal life when you were reborn to magnify, to glorify Jesus. Well, if so, then allow the Holy Spirit to point out things that need to be removed so that the indwelling Holy Spirit can fill you and use you so that there is a definite magnification of Jesus in your life. I want you to look at how they did it. All right, um, it says that they brought all of these things and they burned them. So th this was a permanent change, wasn't it? Uh, they never wanted to look back. They never wanted to be tempted to go back to these things that needed to be given up so that they could radically follow Jesus Christ. And to me, verse 20, it's as exciting as verse 10 was. It says, so mightily grew the word of the Lord and it prevailed. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. I mean, that's what we want, right? We want God's word to uh, grow mightily and prevail uh, because that's what brings people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what grows those who have come to Christ. That's what helps them continue on in their relationship with him. The word of God prevailing in our own lives and in our families and in our church and in our communities. And how did that happen? Uh, what was the catalyst for, for that becoming a reality here? The word of God prevailing mightily? Those who had believed, they got rid of anything out of their lives that was stripping Jesus from being magnified. That's how it's going to happen here, too. Have you believed? I mean, if not, do that this morning. Trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. In prayer right now, confess to God that 
you're a sinner and you need a Savior and tell uh, God that you're trusting only in who Jesus is and what he has done for you to save you from your sins, to give you new life in Christ now, a guarantee of eternal life with him in heaven forever. And you might say, Jason, I've done that. Well, I say, praise the Lord. But do you, do you see yourself in any way at the close of this section of Scripture? Maybe the Holy Spirit has pointed out some things even this morning. Maybe he's been pointing them out for a while now. And, and there are things that need to go. His message to you has been, hey, this needs to go. This is getting in the way of Jesus being magnified. It doesn't belong in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's keeping you from fully following Jesus. It's getting in the way of him being glorified and magnified in your life. You know, in verse 19, all of the stuff that these Christians, they tangibly removed it from their lives, that was very costly. Um, And King James says, so much silver. There's modern translations that say this many drachmas, that many different commentaries, uh, depending on exchange rates, they estimate it from anywhere from a couple years salary to like literally in the millions of dollars. And what does that mean? Listen, it is always costly to follow the Lord, isn't it? It's always costly to follow Jesus. It was incomprehensibly costly for Jesus to save you, wasn't it? He gave his life. There's always a cost in worship. There's always a cost in magnifying the Lord. But listen, it's so worth it. It's not a waste. It's an eternally wise investment that that bears guaranteed dividends. Uh, In faith, you have to decide, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worthy? Is everything that God offers me in Jesus Christ, is it worth it to you? What, What needs to be left here this morning? And if the Holy Spirit's pointing something out, my encouragement to you is lay it down. Just lay it down, all of it. Just like, we're not going to have a book burning up here. I don't want to ruin the stage or the flowers. But what needs to be tangibly removed from your life today in order for Jesus to be magnified? Tell him right now. Tell him this morning, I'm done. I'm done with it all. I'm yours. I'm all yours because you are worth it, Lord. I want there to be a definite magnification of Jesus Christ in my life. No one else, nothing else. Him being magnified, starting here this morning. As Tommy comes, leads us in a hymn of invitation. I pray that we turn our eyes upon Jesus. I pray that we keep them there. Let's all stand.